In this case, sin is more like a building that has been condemned. A building has been thoroughly examined and it's unsafe and it's been condemned. Jesus put sin in its proper place. He put it to death. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. What a joy it is to be back. Some of you said, were you gone? Uh, The preaching was fantastic while I was away. So some of you have asked, uh, you know, are you going to be gone more often? Uh, So (laughs) it's so good to be back. I'll share just in a minute about our trip, but we're going to prioritize our focus on the Word of God, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading and studying verses 1 through 4 today. So look with me. This is God's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit that Christ would be exalted, this text would be illuminated, and Lord, that we would be edified and equipped. Lord, we're not here to be patted on the back and told how great we are. We're here to allow Jesus to be lifted high as we look at God's Word, as it's exposited rightly. So Lord, I pray that you would Allow this text to be carefully uh, and uh, truly uh, studied uh, and examined and preached upon today. Lord, guide my words and help me to get out of the way that your spirit would be our true teacher. So we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity and we exalt you uh, for being the God of the word as we study the word of God today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, my family and I, we had a wonderful time uh, away. Thank you guys uh, for asking and praying for us. Uh, we had kind of a first ever uh, opportunity, and, and I don't want to say the last ever, but my son Aiden is graduating this year. He's a senior, and time does go really quick. Some of you new parents. Uh, people told me that, but it, it really goes quick. And uh, we, we kind of had a bucket list trip. We were able to go uh, across the country driving our own vehicle uh, from Florida uh, to really the Southwest. And um, we were able to see the, the caverns in Carlsbad, incredible spot. We were able to see Yosemite, uh, which was amazing. We were able to go through the fog-laden city of San Francisco. We tried to watch the fireworks on July 4th, had a perfect vantage spot where they filmed uh, Bumblebee and Transformers. We're like, this is the best spot to watch. And uh, the fireworks went up into the clouds. We couldn't see them at all. So fail. <laughs> We're, we're visitors. Um, and, and then the big clear, of course, the big clear skies of Texas and Arizona. Uh, and we'll probably not forget this trip uh, for the rest of our lives. But I've got to say, the most beautiful view, I'll show you here, the most beautiful view, I caught my daughter with that reaction, was them walking up to see the vista, if you would, of the Grand Canyon. 
And as they looked out over this huge precipice on the south rim, they, the beauty as far as the eye could see really just it caught all of us uh, by surprise. And we literally, if you've been there, you know, you, you literally can't fathom what your eyes are, are, are seeing, the majesty of what you're taking in. And in one second, we're in the parking lot with a lot of kind of stressed out, eager, weary travelers. The next minute, we come to this view, one of the greatest views our country has to offer. Now, this morning, as we open God's word to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, in like manner, you and I come to what many people regard as, you could say, the Grand Canyon or, or the most beautiful, majestic chapter in all, not only the book of Romans, not only the New Testament, but perhaps the entire Bible. Paul the Apostle, as you know, has been writing what we call Romans, is really a missionary fundraising letter to the church in Rome, located in Italy. And he's been communicating the gospel message that he unashamedly preaches wherever he goes. These are places, by the way, where Christ has not yet been named. And that's one of the reasons why we are very, very focused on uh, sending missionaries, supporting work that happens in places where Christ has not yet been named, unreached people groups. Well, we've already seen in chapters one through four how all men are condemned that the utter sinfulness of all humanity who's been born in Adam. We've seen how Jesus Christ is the second Adam and how there's a righteousness that's apart from law that's been revealed to us. And this righteousness provides hope that we can be justified by faith in Christ's finished work for us on the cross, apart from our works, apart from law. And we've learned through these chapters that we're free from sin, not because we're great people, but because we were joined with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Not only that, but we also learn that we're free from the demands and the threat of the law. And now, as we just sang, we're enabled by the Holy Spirit to live and walk in newness of life. So true renewal has taken place in the lives of each and every Christ follower. Romans chapter eight, as we come to this text, shows us now what sanctification truly looks like in the life of the person who is, you could say, in Christ, with quotes. The, the person who's in Christ. And Paul, in this chapter, is gonna emphasize two aspects of our Christian life. These two aspects are absolutely essential, but they're often overlooked. So the first 17 verses show us the priority that the Spirit has in our sanctification. Whereas verses 18 through 39 remind us the important and often ignored place that suffering has in each of our lives. So Romans chapter eight is really sanctification by the spirit and through suffering. And that's what we're gonna look at in this chapter. But we learn more. We also learn that, that we are in Christ heirs with him. That we are the elect who've been predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And we even learn we're more than merely a conqueror. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then we come to that glorious final truth in verses 38 and 39. I can't read this without getting motivated and maybe a little bit emotionally excited where Paul says he's convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? One person suggested that the overarching theme 
of or in chapter 8, or at least what we walk away understanding more than ever, is the word assurance. Now, we'll come back to that a little bit later. But how fascinating that chapter 8 ends with no separation, but verse 1, it begins with no condemnation. Listen, for the next six weeks, we're going to be studying Romans chapter 8 together. And I hope that you, like me and our family, have been able to kind of uh, tackle uh, same page summer. It's that awesome opportunity we have with thousands of other believers to read through the same uh, portion of the New Testament over the summer. And my encouragement for you is we always leave Sunday as kind of the open day, right? So Sunday is the day to kind of prepare your hearts for the gathering of God's people on the Lord's day. And uh, what I would encourage you to do is have your Bible on your nightstand. A lot of us have our phones on our nightstand. The first thing we check is I got to go to the gram. I would encourage you to leave your phone on silent, pick up your Bible and let the first thing that your eyes see in the morning, other than your glorious spouse and all of their sleepy glory, that the first thing you see is you open your Bible to the text on Sunday morning and you begin to meditate on the verses that we're going to study ahead of time. We're going to work on putting that in the bulletin so you can even get that Friday night and begin to prepare your hearts. Um, but we're going to have a, a glorious time as we study Romans chapter 8. So this morning, we're in verses 1 through 4. And here's what we're going to see. If you're taking note on the screen, we're going to see that all who are in Christ, we have these three things. We are forgiven, verse 1. We are free, verses 2 and 3a. And this might seem surprising, but we're fulfilled. And you'll see what that means. Uh, verses 3b through 4. And these are solely because of the person and work of Christ. So let's unpack that first idea that all who are in Christ are forgiven. Look with me again at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a Bible scholar, you're going to note one big word jumping out from the pages is the word therefore. And as good Bible expositors, we need to understand what it is therefore, right? But um bum uh, So we have to understand why is he saying therefore? So to do that, we have to rewind a little bit. If we look back at Romans chapter 7, we were left off with the desperate truth that apart from Christ intervening, reaching out and saving wretched men and women like you and me, if we didn't have Christ, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We left off with that, that without Christ, we are utterly lost, forsaken, and condemned. And the language from chapter 7 to chapter 8 is a huge contrast. So chapter 7, just verses 13 through 24, has 38 personal pronouns that are all focused on self, whereas chapter 8 is focused on the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned 19 times. Romans chapter 8, when we get to the therefore, it's not just a reflection back on chapter 7, but Paul is reaching all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where he began to explain the gospel. And he begins not with the good news, which you'd expect the gospel is good news. He begins with very bad news, very dark news, where he says in Romans 1.18 on the screen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So as we begin to follow Paul's logic, watch with me on the screen where Paul goes with this, if you can see it. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, that sinners are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. They're putting some 
wrath aside for later. Uh, He tells us that sinners will receive God's wrath in fury, that sinners will perish whether they acknowledge God's law or not, that sinners are all held accountable to God. There's no excuse. In 323, we, we of course know this verse, that all fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. That sinners are gonna face eternal condemnation. And if, in case you're wondering today who those sinners are, we learn in 518 that all men born in Adam are sinners and all will be condemned. Aren't you so glad you came to church today to hear such glorious good news? Now listen, as a pastor and proclaimer of the gospel, I would be disingenuous, if not deceptive, if I just told you, listen, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and let me show you how to live your best life now. Let let me just pat you on the back. It's all going to be good. God's primary concern for you is your happiness, comfort, and contentment. Uh, Honestly, how can I, how could we ever stand before God telling condemned people, just sit back and relax? See, the gospel is good news to be sure, but the gospel is good news precisely because there's bad news. And the bad news, according to the scriptures, is that in your natural state, you're a sinner, which means in Adam, to be in Adam means to be under condemnation. Now, this morning, if you're watching this online or you're listening to this podcast, you're here live In your natural state, you can't change this status by right thinking, by better behavior. You can't change this status by doing keto or by learning the fancy condo fold. Okay, you're not gonna become righteous by doing those things. Your present state and your future state, what awaits you in the future, is condemnation. Someone's leaning over saying, what is the condo fold? Look it up later. Okay, the word condemnation in the Greek is katakrima, it's a word that is used for judicial pronouncement upon a guilty person. When a judge would preside over a criminal case and that guilty verdict was read and the sentence of death was also read, the moment they strike the gavel, that convicted criminal is now condemned. So when you look at verse one and you see there's therefore now no condemnation, that is the word, that's the idea of the word. So the law, in regards to the unbeliever, what does it do? It exposes you, as we've been learning. It it strips you until you're laid bare of any self-justifying, any excuses. And then the law condemns you, not only to a physical death, but much more terrifyingly to a spiritual death where there's wrath and fury. And Paul says in verse 1 that in Christ there is no condemnation. In fact, the way this reads in the Greek, this chapter does not begin with the word there. In fact, the verse doesn't begin with maybe the word therefore. It actually begins with the word no. So if you were to read this in the Greek, this sounds a little bit like Yoda, but but let me just read it to you in the Greek. This would read this way, literally. Paul wrote this, no, therefore, is there now condemnation. So to be in Adam is to be under condemnation. To be in Christ is to be under grace. Before Christ, we had a guilty verdict with the threat of death, but now in Christ, that threat itself has been satisfied, answered, paid, and laid to rest. So the guilt that was associated with our identification with Adam is now removed by our identification with Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. If you're in Adam, you can await condemnation. If you're in Christ, there is none. Now, on this note, I want to make sure we understand the difference between condemnation and conviction. Big difference. Okay, one of them leads you away from God. The other one leads you toward God. No Christian will experience condemnation. Isn't that a glorious truth today? We will not experience condemnation, but each and every Christian will experience conviction. In fact, if you're not experiencing conviction, I would venture to say you're not a believer. But here's how to tell the difference. Conviction whispers to us, this is to be rejected. This thing you're doing, that's to be rejected. Whereas condemnation whispers to you, you are rejected. And so as a believer, we need not fear rejection or the wrath of God, condemnation. Though we deserve it, and we certainly still struggle with sin, like we learn in chapter 7, eventually we become exhausted in our own strength, trying to find freedom from sin, but in Christ, we experience no condemnation. We experience freedom from our sin, uh, freedom from the power of sin immediately. So I just want to make sure you guys look at verse 1. Make sure you know this is not progressive. (laughs) This is not saying that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are growing in Christ. And as long as they continue to grow more and more and more, there'll be less condemnation the more you mature in Christ. And you'll kind of get away from it like you get away from a bad accident. We'll just get a little bit further away. No, instantaneously when we repented of our sins and trusted Christ, we were justified and we need not fear the guilty verdict because the righteousness of Christ has been given to us, gifted to us, imputed to us by faith. However, there was condemnation for Christ. When we see what Christ endured for us, he received the condemnation that you and I deserved. He was stricken and he was killed. And yet, because we're in him, there is no condemnation for us. Now, in some of your Bibles, if you're not reading from the English Standard Version, some of your Bibles, there's an unfortunate addition or kind of a a change in verses 1 through 4. In the oldest manuscripts, though, it's not, this little addition is not found in verse 1. So I just want to make sure you see this. Uh, The the thing that, if if your translations have a little additional thing in verse 1, Um, that should belong at the end of verse 4 because that's where it is in the original manuscripts. But here's where it is. Um, Let me read it again with that addition. Verse 1, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now you don't have to raise your hand if that's you if you have that Bible translation. But if that's added there, the rational deduction that I make, that I may be tempted to make, is that, oh, there's no condemnation only for those who walk in the spirit. But if I walk in the flesh, then I can still expect condemnation. And I, see, I think that's an unfortunate oversight. Uh, and I'm grateful the earliest manuscripts put it at the end of verse four. Because in Christ, it's not dependent upon whether I'm walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh as a Christian. Well, if you're walking in the flesh, you're gonna be condemned to hell. And if you're walking in Christ, then you're okay. No, in Christ, I am no longer condemned, period. I am now forgiven, and that forensic forgiveness does not hang in the balance depending upon my performance, but upon Christ's finished work. Church, that's glorious good news, amen? You guys aren't awake. We didn't have coffee earlier, so I, we need to get into this. But, but listen, it gets better. Look with me at verse two. Not only in Christ am I forgiven, there's no condemnation, that's good enough, But notice, I'm also free, verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. All right, so notice with me the words, the use of the words law. Verse 3 is describing the law in terms we usually employ. We usually think of the law as the summary of God's commands uh, in Moses. So that is how Paul uses it in verse 3. But verse 2 introduces another idea or another use of the word law. And what he says in verse 2 is that there's two laws. There's the law of the spirit of life and there's the law of sin and death. And one person suggested that these are both shorthand summaries of both our natural state and a summary of the gospel. So look at the first one, the law of sin and death. They say the law of sin and death is that awful marriage that we talked about at the beginning of Romans 7, where we are brought into this relationship and the law as a married partner exposes our sin. It brings condemnation and death. It provokes us to sin. But then at the end of the day, it's powerless to save. It's powerless to help us. It's like a mirror. It reveals to us our condition, but it doesn't reach out and assist us with our hair. Now, some have called it the law on the wall. In other words, like the Ten Commandments hanging on the wall of a synagogue, it's true and good, but it's still outside of the sinful heart. So it's, it's the law on the wall. Now compare that law with the law of the spirit of life. And that's kind of a compressed way to describe the gospel. Here's what Christopher Ash says about the spirit, the law of the spirit of life. He says, this is what happens when the spirit of Christ takes the obedience of Christ and imputes the righteousness of Christ to us and writes the fundamental demand of the good law on the cleansed heart of the believer, changing us from the inside and so leading to eternal life. The law on the wall becomes the law in the heart. I like that. That's, that's helpful. So there's two laws, according to Paul, or you could say principles, if you would, if you're getting confused by the worst, uh, use of the word law. So a, a law is just a principle by which something operates. So the way I think of it is in the terms of the law of gravity. Let's think about that for a minute. There's a fixed set of principles that govern and accompany the law of gravity. So you guys remember this in third grade? I'm going to show you a picture on the screen. You guys remember who this guy was, right? Anybody? This was, of course, no, it's not Benjamin Franklin. It's Isaac Newton, yes. And history is that he saw the apple, and we add the little additional humorous thing, which wasn't historical, that it hit him on the head. It didn't actually happen historically. But uh, th what was the phrase Newton came up with when he saw the apple fall? He said, what goes up must come down. Unless it's Jeff Bezos, he can stay up in outer space uh, as long as he wants. It's fine. So he saw the apple fall. And, and the idea behind gravity is that the mass of the earth is pulling objects of lesser and even greater mass towards it. I didn't know this, but Jupiter has such a great mass, it actually pulls the sun towards it just incrementally. That's how large the mass of Jupiter is. But our sun has such a large and great mass that it is keeping us in orbit. So there's gravitational pull. And so from our vantage point on this planet, on the earth, as we stand here, the law of gravity is virtually impossible to overcome. It is irrelevant how great you are at the high jump. You could even be in the Olympics coming up in just a few weeks, but you're still coming back down uh, because you're limited by or living within the principles of gravity. Just think about man's attempt prior to the Wright brothers at overcoming this dilemma. Just think about it. I mean, you, you, you've seen the videos. You know what's coming next right? This guy's falling. It's going to be fail army videos. 
So you and I cannot actually escape or subvert the good law of gravity. But what we can do is we can appeal to a higher law, a more powerful law, the law of aerodynamics. So we've researched this and we found out if you combine lift, weight, drag, and thrust, well, then we now have the freedom of leaving the earth and now we have a greater, more powerful law or principle in place. One law or principle supersedes the other because it's more powerful. Now notice that Paul says, according to the first half of verse three, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law itself was weak. Why was it weak? It wasn't that the law was itself having any fault, but notice the fault is our fallen sinful nature, the flesh. No, the law itself, as we've learned, is good. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is in the fact that the law was given to sinners and sinners are bound up in their flesh and they lack the strength to obey. The law provokes and condemns, but it doesn't provide the remedy to overcome sin. We needed to turn somewhere else to find the strength to obey. And Paul says, God has done this. God has done what the law was unable to do. And so he says at the beginning of verse two, the law of the spirit of life has set you free. You're now governing, governed by a different principle. You're now set free in Christ Jesus with this law of the spirit of life, the gospel. You've been set free from your natural state, the principle of trying to obey God or trying to run from God and sinning and death. Uh, God has done what the law could not do. You and I have been set free from the law of sin and death, not because we erased the law, ignored the law, abolished the law, no, but because Christ came and fulfilled it. So because of that, he's now endued us with the strength to be free from sin's power because we have the spirit within us. 2 Corinthians 3.17, you can jot this down. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you guys know that the spirit of God is within all believers? And so the truly free people on this planet are believers. We are the ones who have been set free. There's freedom where the spirit is. And you and I are in Christ and the spirit is in us and thus we're free. Even if you don't feel free today, uh, we are set free. Now, not only are we forgiven, not only are we free, we also find something fulfilled. Now, when we, we have that as a, as a point here, some of us get misunderstood about that. Look at the rest of verse three. I want, I want to make sure you understand what I mean by fulfilled. Verse three, second half says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be, here's that word, fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, this is a, a, this is a packed section. So I want to jot down four points from these two verses. So if you're taking notes, please jot these down. We'll list them slowly. Number one, I want you to learn from this section that, number one, this is maybe an obvious, but God sent his own son. And I don't want to move past this too quickly. Notice that both the initiation as well as the intimacy of the father. God sent his own son. Christ's pre-incarnate existence with the Father, with the Spirit, was one of unbroken, perfect, loving unity. And yet the Father initiates sending his own son. I mean, in verse three, by sending his own son, don't you hear in that 
some of the affections of Genesis 22 where God says to Abram, Abraham, he says, I want you to take your son, your own son, the son that you love, and I want you to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And you kind of hear that, that, that tempo. God sent his very own son. At the beginning of, of uh, Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this, when the fullness of time had come, here it is again, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul is saying God sent his son at just the right time, the promised seed who came as the serpent crusher through the line of Eve, born submitted to fully obey and fulfill the law in order to bring redemption to those of us who in our flesh could not fulfill the law. So God sent his own son, but how did he send him? Notice secondly from the text that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, One of the church father said Jesus' birth was similar to ours in origin, but not in sinfulness. Uh, John Stott reminds us, Paul did not say Christ came in sinful flesh because the flesh of Jesus was sinless, but, but Christ neither did he come in the likeness of flesh because the flesh of Jesus was real. But Paul says Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh because Jesus' uh, incarnation was both sinless and real. So we need to understand the incarnation. There are some today that want to erase that idea, but Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. But thirdly, this is very critical, Christ came as a sin offering. Notice that Paul says, the text says, Jesus came for sin. The purpose of the incarnation was for the spotless lamb of God to atone for our sin. Now, as much as I like some of the other aspects of the cross, Jesus didn't merely come to establish the kingdom. He didn't merely come to show us the way of love as our example. So it's so important. We can't minimize the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ for sin. Though someone erased that from uh, their New Testaments, uh, it's here clearly, and Paul emphasizes that. Christ came as a sin offering. And finally, number four, When Christ came, he condemned sin in the flesh. Did you notice the word condemn there again? From verse one, same root word. Notice what is being weighed and found wanting. It's sin itself. In this case, sin is more like a building that has been condemned. A building has been thoroughly examined and it's unsafe and it's been condemned. Jesus put sin in its proper place. He put it to death. So all of those four, look at those four. All of those culminate This is the purpose of Christ's coming. And all of this culminate in the end of verse four. Notice all of this was done, Paul says, in order that, and here's kind of the the payoff, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I mean, this is a revolutionary idea. The phrase here, righteous requirement, by the way, it's not plural, righteous requirements. No, it's singular. This word or these words is connected to our word for justified. So being justified by keeping the law is not possible. Galatians 2.21 says if it was, then Christ came for no, absolutely no reason. So the righteous requirement, or you could say the standard of rightness or righteousness that the law demands or requires, that has already been obtained through Christ. So now, as we just saying, it's not me trying to fulfill the law, but By the Spirit, the law is being fulfilled in us. You and I have been justified, we're being sanctified, and one day 
praise God, maybe soon we'll be glorified. So we understand these three aspects of salvation. And listen, we can't surgically remove our justification from our sanctification. We have been, past tense, made righteous through the work of Christ. And present tense, we're being made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. One of those is immediate, the other is ongoing. Man, I wish that sanctification was immediate as well. I've said this before. Like I wish there was just a switch that was flipped and boom, I'm sanctified. I'm in Christ, completely Christ-like and holy. Uh, Our justification, our sanctification are inseparable. And Paul's point is that now in Christ, the rightness of God's law is being fulfilled in us. Notice that that clause that belongs there at the end of verse four, it's fulfilled in those who are walking in the flesh or who are not walking in the flesh, but who are walking according to the spirit. This is groundbreaking stuff. God's commands now become God's enablings. One person said, law obedience isn't the ground of our justification, but it is the fruit of it. Sometimes we get like, we, we back away from that. Well, we don't want to like, we don't want to get legalistic and tell people like that there's actually obedience in, in like the Christian life. So, you know, let's, let's not overdo that. But, but here Paul is pointing out that Christ has come to do the work from first to last in order that the law is fulfilled in him and it's fulfilled in us who are in Christ and the spirit who is in us. So listen, here's a way to illustrate this. We could try all day long to, to make this happen. I'm going to make the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in me. Or we can allow the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. There's kind of one of two options. So here's how I would like demonstrate this. I, I can practice. I've been on the golf course for a few years. It's pretty bad. If you've gone golfing with me, I know some of you have. It's a little embarrassing and uh, not the best. And I could try all day long. We live in a golf course community, so I could go out there at night. I have before and gotten kicked off the course because I'm not supposed to be there. But I've been on there before, and I could try all day long going on the golf course with permission and paid. I could try all day long to go on there and perfect my golf swing. And, And I could watch Nicholas, Palmer, Jones, Watson. I can watch those guys, Tiger Woods. I can watch them all day long and try to perfect their technique and try to follow their form to the exact minutia. But in the end, I'm limited. And I'm going to find myself actually more frustrated because of my inability to perform. But follow this thought. If Tiger Woods himself were able to somehow like animate my body, inhabit my body, and animate me in such a way that it was Tiger making the swing, it was Tiger on the fairway, it was Tiger on the green, suddenly you would see me achieving something that previously was impossible. And what Paul is saying is that the work of Christ was ultimately to cause the law of God to be fulfilled in and through his people who are not trying on their own to produce fruit, but who are abiding in him and are empowered as they're joined with him, empowered by the Holy Spirit, no longer condemned, now commissioned and endued with all that is needed to live a a righteous life before the face of God in righteousness that pleases him. Notice that it doesn't say in order that we might try to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, but it already is fulfilled almost passive tense. It's fulfilled in us. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're beginning this incredible chapter and there's much more to dive into. Next week we'll um, read verses five uh, through verse eight. 
And we'll talk about a little bit more about the flesh, walking in the spirit. And there's much more we could say to apply this first section of Romans 8, but I want to boil it down to three things that we can walk away with today. Three take-home points, three points of application. Number one, this is so awesome. The threat is not postponed, it's removed. So rejoice. The story is told of Martin Luther, who may have been in a dream, found himself being attacked by Satan. And whether it was a scroll or it was a, a slate, but Satan began to list Luther's sins and presented it to him. And reaching the end of the list, the way the story goes, Luther said, is that all? And, and Satan said, no, and began to write more of his sins. And Luther said, you forgot some. <laughs> and he added more and more. And he said, is that it? And the devil said, what a black and dark catalog this is. But Luther said triumphantly, yes, my sins are many. My transgressions in the sight of an infinitely holy God are countless as the hairs of my head. In me dwells no good thing, but Satan, you've forgotten to write one more thing on the slab. And then he quoted 1 John 1, 7, that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You and I have maybe felt condemnation in the past. We've felt the threat of the law. We've, we've feared eternal separation, wrath and fury. But listen, that's not merely postponed. Like, can I get an extension on my, my taxes? I just want to get an extension before I have to, can I postpone this, uh, this inevitable thing? No, it's receiving the official notice that your debt is fully paid. Nothing more is required of you. Christ has not only paid a debt he did not owe and a debt we could never pay, he took our place and he took our sin in his body and he died the death that we deserved. Paul said to the church in Galatia, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took our place. And so we need not fear the threat. The threat is not on pause. The threat is not postponed. It has been completely removed. You and I have been redeemed through the personal work of Christ. So rather than walking in fear, we can walk in freedom and we can lift our voices in gratitude to a great God and Savior. The threat has been removed, so rejoice. Well, secondly, if you're taking note, I want you to jot this down. Assurance, this great assurance that there's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, this gives us confidence. And so we can take a deep breath and rest. We can rest not only from our miserable attempts at seeking to justify ourselves before God, because we still do that. We can also rest from our deepest fears that maybe we're not saved. Have you wrestled with this as a Christian? Like, am I saved? Oh, I hope I'm saved. I wonder if I'm saved. I sometimes struggle with, am I a Christian? I'm not sure. I remember when I was a child in a youth group, uh, there would be like the altar call. And I remember responding, I don't know, maybe 15 times just to make sure. Just got to make sure this one's got to stick. I'm going to throw this one on the wall. Maybe this one will stick. Uh, and I said the sinner's prayer. But sadly, many people believe, hey, as long as I prayed the formula years and years ago when I was one, I couldn't even talk, but I prayed the prayer. And then I just live my life however I want. I I'm saved because I took out wrath insurance and, and I'm good to go. Uh, I think that's dangerous. In his book, The Unsaved Christian, I commend you to read this book. It's fantastic. And by the way, The Unsaved Christian is one of the reasons we decided to make the move to having covenant community because we realize there's lots of people in the church who aren't Christians and we need to 
confirm their testimony. We need to come alongside them, make sure they're baptized. We need to come alongside them and encourage them to walk in Christ. So uh, Pastor Dean Instra says this. He says, the doctrine of perseverance and eternal security are treasures for the believer. We just need to make sure we aren't banking on fool's gold. Wow. You see, reciting a simple prayer that when you're, there's no repentance and faith, that doesn't save. Jesus saves. And so when we place our faith in Christ, that is complete life surrender. We're, we're repenting. We're turning from a life of sin. We're surrendering our life and trusting Christ and following him. And so if you've done that and you still sometimes wrestle with, am I saved? Though? I want to make sure. Spurgeon said dead men don't wrestle. In other words, if you're dead in your sins, you're not particularly worried if you're saved. You haven't even had that thought. You're like, man, I'm good. But the true believer has at some point in his or her life felt the weight of, of that looming condemnation and they've turned in faith to Christ to be assured of their sonship. And sometimes though they do wrestle, it's natural. We shouldn't be locked into that place. Um, but if you've wrestled at some point with assurance, you're in good company. But when we're assured of our eternal security in Christ and we never again fear the lost condemnation, we can stop being insecure and say, no, I know that to die is to be present with Christ. And Christopher Ashe said this about this. He said, an insecure Christian is a dangerous Christian about your salvation. He said, I always feel I have something to prove. So my attitude to my fellow Christians will have an element of competitiveness, however discreet. And my evangelistic involvement, if any, will never be the humility of one forgiven sinner telling other sinners where to find grace. So our assurance gives us confidence, not arrogance. Let me be quick to say that. A haughty Christian is a contradiction in terms. When we read there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, we don't walk out and say, ha ha, there's no condemnation for me. How about you? Right? That's, that's not our posture. We're bold and confident in the love of God and in our right standing with him. And that produces a posture of meekness in the world and even among our church community. And so, so encouraging to know that assurance gives us confidence. And so rest this morning, rest. Finally, number three, I just want to leave you with this. The Spirit will do the work. There's work for you to do, but the Spirit's going to do the heavy lifting. And so what do we do? We yield. We used to yield completely to the desires of the flesh. We'll look more at that next week. But now in Christ, we have new marching orders. We walk according to the Spirit. John Stott says the Christian life is essentially, essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. So we don't have time to go into this, but there's a direct link in this chapter between the weakness of the law in our flesh and the power of the Holy Spirit. And you and I have a great resource, a greater resource than this world even has available. It was unavailable to us when we were merely in Adam. We have the Spirit of God who has come in and sealed us. We have new desires, a new heart, and new power to walk in faith, obedience, and freedom. One person said Moses' law was right but not might. Sin's law has might but not right, but the law of the Spirit has both right and might. So we can yield to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let me ask you this morning, some convicting questions. Are you yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, in your marriage? Or, if you're married, or are you in step with the flesh? 
which seeks its own, which carries resentment, which retaliates? Or are you walking in the spirit in your singleness? If not, then you're in step with the flesh, you're lusting, you're looking to push boundaries, you're seeking contentment in someone else rather than in Christ. Are you yielding to the spirit, the work of the spirit in your vocation? Or are you in step with the flesh, cutting corners, blaming others, seeking your own ambition rather than seeking to do good? With fellow Christians, are you yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit? Or are you in step with the flesh, harboring bitterness, avoiding friendships, spewing slander, making excuses? For all of us, are, are we yielded to the work of the Spirit in the secret place? Or have we allowed the flesh to take possession of our, the throne of our hearts and to rule our members? We're going to learn so much more on how to walk in the Spirit in this chapter. And my prayer for us as a church is that we all, unify, in a unified way, would continually yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. It's my prayer for you. I know that's your prayer for me and for us. And so with that, let's stand together and let's pray. Bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray. We'll close in song. Oh, blessed spirit, you're the author of all grace and comfort. And we ask that you would come work repentance in each one of us. Lord, teach us to behold our creator, Christ, his ability to save us, his heart revealed to us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to keep in step with you. We ask you, Father, that you'd be glorified in and through our feeble yet forgiven lives. And we ask you, Jesus, our Lord, to be exalted in our praise and to be enough in our pursuits. We thank you that you alone, as the disciples came to understand, you alone have the words of eternal life. And with just a word, you created all things, and in you all things hold together. So this morning, we find all of our rest in you. We place all of our hope in you. We tune our affections to you alone because all we have is Christ. Lord, we thank you that your name is matchless, that there is none like you. And all that we need, all that we have is found in you. So Lord, as we close in song, we're reminded that the work is not up to us to try to achieve and attain, that your spirit will do the work. But we, we hold fast to Christ, knowing that he's holding fast to us and that he'll be glorified in and through our feeble lives. Thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to lift up our voices in song and to glorify you. So Lord, we're reminded today as we sing that you're enough, that you're sufficient. We worship you today with your people. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.